Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Trade, a podcast by the World Trade Organization. In this season, we are talking about the impact and the implications of the results at MC12, the WTO's 12th ministerial conference held in Geneva in June 2022. We'll also take a glimpse behind the scenes, showing how the agreements came together. I'm Daniel Prusen, spokesperson of the WTO. In today's episode, you'll be hearing about the TRIPS waiver and the role of multilateral trade in responding to the ongoing pandemic and in preparing for the next one. So, let's talk trade. Excellencies, you're not going home empty-handed. The package of agreements you have reached will make a difference to the lives of people around the world. In response to the ongoing shocks from COVID-19, the declaration you just adopted will make access to medical supplies and components more predictable in this pandemic and in the next one. The TRIPS waiver compromise will contribute to ongoing efforts to deconcentrate and diversify vaccine manufacturing capacity so that a crisis in one region does not leave others cut off. That was WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala at MC12's closing session. It was the most heated discussion at the WTO in the run-up to the 12th Ministerial Conference. On one side, a large group of developing countries led by India and South Africa and supported by a range of civil society groups arguing that the WTO's rules on the protection of intellectual property were preventing poor countries from getting COVID-19 vaccines. These rules, they argued, needed to change in order to ensure greater production and availability of vaccines to the world's most vulnerable. On the other side, a group of developed countries, home to pharmaceutical industries, arguing that the innovation safeguarded through intellectual property rules was key in ensuring the development and production of vaccines at record speed and volume. Altering these rules, they argued, would set back vaccine development not only for the current pandemic, but future pandemics as well. This was one of the challenges WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala faced when she took office last year, bringing both sides to common ground on the TRIPS waiver issue, TRIPS referring to the WTO's agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. How did WTO members manage to overcome their fundamental differences, which appeared unbridgeable, And what will the new agreements, which eventually emerged on 17 June, mean for those in need? With us to tell the story of the bumpy road to the TRIPS waiver and pandemic response agreements are two people who were deeply involved in the negotiations. Hello, I'm Annabel Gonzalez, Deputy Director General here at the WTO. Hello, um, my name is Lansana Berry. I'm Ambassador Permanent Representative of Sierra Leone and Chairman of the TRIPS Council. Thank you, Annabelle, and thank you, Ambassador Kiberi, for joining us. I think we can all agree that you know, there was a very long and arduous meeting. Uh, one thing I noticed in the final hours, there were a lot of takeout orders coming in for the delegates, stuck up in the meeting rooms. I saw pizzas going up into the room. There was Mexican takeout after that. What was your takeout go-to place, and what tricks did you use to stay up so late? Coffee and um, a lot of cookies, actually. I didn't see um, any pizza. And the coffee actually kept me up. I had never taken more coffee. Like I took gallons of coffee throughout the um, negotiations. Annabelle? Yes, I noticed that the ambassador is a great fan of coffee. 
In my case, it's more Coke Zero. Uh, and I have to say that I drank quite a bit of uh, Coke Zero. And then I took the cookies, I took the sandwiches, the pizza, you know, a- anything that, uh, that was available, I, I, I took it. Let's look at what was achieved with all that fuel you consumed. Um, how would you explain the outcome on the TRIPS discussion to someone who has not been following the WTO talks? This decision basically simplifies how governments can uh, override patent rights to enable diversification of manufacturing capacity of COVID-19 without the consent of the right holder. So I think this decision is very important in helping build up and diversify the capacity to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, It is also important to foster regional supply chains, uh, particularly in in Africa, but also in other parts of the world. Uh, It can also help strengthen health systems. It cannot do that on its own. Uh, There are other elements that are important and which are, in a way, included in our Declaration on Trade and Health, which refers to the need of uh, addressing the issue of export bans, uh, facilitating trade, promoting regulatory cooperation, having a proper role for services in this area. So it cannot do all of this in itself, but it is an important element. Having a robust and resilient vaccine manufacturing capacity in Africa is a global public good. In a pandemic, we have new variants that may develop in places where not enough people are vaccinated. So it is in the interest of everyone across the world that everyone has access to vaccines. And diversification of manufacturing capacity is an important element in that regard. It is of huge, uh, not practical, certainly practical, but huge symbolic importance. I remember in the lead up to uh, these negotiations, a year, even nearly two years ahead, we had said in the developing group, in the African group, that a decision on the waiver is central to the response to the pandemic. We had made this uh, the central plank of the WTO's response to the pandemic, and that we are able to have a decision on it is of massive importance in terms of the response, but also in terms of the response to the demands of the developing societies. And this is extremely, extremely important. To me, frankly, the other decisions are very important. I mean, fisheries, for example, for my country is absolutely critical, it's important, agriculture is. But this is what resonates at this moment, frankly, over and above any other decision of MC12. This decision is really tailored and targeted to developing members to work together to build up and diversify vaccine production. You know how this whole discussion came about. Vaccine production and distribution were concentrated in the north and half of the world. Africa was largely left out. A number of developing societies were not getting the vaccines that they wanted. So the India and South Africa proposed to have um, a waiver to make sure that there is diversification of production. In practical terms, what's in the agreement? How does it make it easier to use existing flexibilities within the TRIPS agreement? When you look at the TRIPS agreement, the preamble says that intellectual property is private property. But it has some flexibilities inside that can be used in cases of emergencies to produce at a certain level, but the process is quite rigorous. What this document does was to simplify uh, those uh, existing flexibilities, and to make one waiver on what you can export uh, using somebody else's intellectual property to produce. I mean, you can export 100%. 
bees has some restrictions, but it is a lot easier for someone to make use of existing intellectual property to produce the vaccines. A year ago, last November even, before MC12 was postponed, it seemed that an agreement on addressing the TRIPS waiver demands were impossible. There were big differences on how to address this, the role of intellectual property. They seemed to be unbridgeable at that point. Uh, So what happened to make this uh, breakthrough uh, occur? Well, you know, I think it is true that since uh, the first uh, proposal on this topic was presented back in October 2020, The discussions among members had been very polarized uh, on this topic. It seemed at one point really that they were talking past uh, each other, at least certain in the TRIPS Council, uh, in the formal Council on Intellectual Property Rights. And then there were also a few attempts to have more informal conversations among some of the members, but that was not producing any results. So uh, at one point, at the suggestion of several uh, delegations, the Director General, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala, and myself, we started discussing with a few members, the European Union, India, South Africa, and the United States, their main positions, their main ideas, their main concepts and elements on this topic. Our goal was to try to identify whether there were any overlaps in their positions using the the convening power of the director general. Meaning the ability of the director general to bring people together and discuss a specific topic. We were trying to assist them to come up with an an agreement in this area, to find those common elements. And this was a very intense process, I have to say. We started in November last year, November 2021, and uh, I, I was looking at my notes, and I can tell you that just in the month of November, we had 24 meetings on this uh, topic, uh, the majority of them virtual, uh, because technology came in very handy in this uh, process. It was indeed a very intense process where all parties involved, I would say, were approaching this from a very pragmatic way. Uh, This was not the high standing that we had been seeing before, but it was looking at this in a problem-solving perspective, again, to try to identify whether there could be elements that could be put together in an agreement. Ambassador Gaberi, you became chair of the TRIPS Council in March 2022. What is your perspective on the process that led to the outcome? This whole process had stalled. It was going nowhere, completely stalled. And then um, the, the DG and DDG. The Director General and the Deputy Director General. Annabelle and Dr. Ngozi came together and said, well, look, we have to break the ice somewhat. We have to move this process forward. And they selected four countries, two of the co-sponsors, India and South Africa, and two of the important rights holders, um, the United States and the European Union. They came together. They had several meetings spanning, I think, five months, uh, some important stakeholders were left out, the UK and, and uh, Switzerland, and this didn't go down well with them, and they really objected to it. But it was uh, important to keep the group small in order to reach convergence, uh, at least to produce a document that could be used for negotiations. Uh, we have to be fair to everyone. And they produced something that didn't satisfy anyone, which is to say that it was a good basis to start conversation around that document. So someone had to have taken that decision to move this process forward, which is why uh, I'm extraordinarily thankful to Annabelle and and Dr. Ngozi for really doing this. And so we decided in May 
that negotiations must begin. And so Annabelle and Dr. Ngozi passed on the document to me, which I then shared for negotiations. And immediately afterwards, uh, we uh, set up a negotiating group. Did I think that this will be successful? I was hopeful, cautiously optimistic. I use that phrase many times. But I wasn't entirely optimistic that we'll get to where we got finally at the beginning. In the first episode of this podcast, Director General Okonjo Iwala talked about how she came to view the agreement on the TRIPS waiver as a good compromise. Civil society was so much against this deal. They were very dissatisfied because they wanted this 100% waiver or nothing. At the same time, the private sector was so upset, really finding it um, very difficult, even though there was all efforts to reassure that this is not going to disincentivize research and innovation, but they were really against it. I thought maybe we do have a compromise that is a real one and is workable because no side likes it. So with civil society knocking it, the private sector knocking it, each side trying to derail it and say there should be no agreement, I kind of felt we've got the right balance. I have to say that this process has several parts. So the first part, like the formal discussion in the TRIPS Council, then the discussions among the Quad, and then Ambassador Gabriel comes in. It's the moment when you have one document that was discussed among four members that needs to be brought to the larger membership. It's something very, very complicated. So he organized a set of smaller discussions among other groups of members, bringing them together, trying to get their views as well, trying to introduce improvements on the Quad document. But it was, it was I think, a moment of uh, great tension. You had a lot of political statements in advance of the ministerial conference, people holding their ground. At what point did it click in the meeting where you saw that, okay, we need to come together for the common good here and we need to resolve this? I would say that there were several steps uh, in the sense that you had to sort of approach this in stages because I think first the Quad document was very important and that without that document it would have been impossible to start from zero in the context of preparation for the ministerial. Uh, but then again we needed to make sure that in that process where it landed with the rest of the membership that they would be able to produce something that would be actionable by ministers because we could not bring to ministers a document that had many things that were still moving around, many moving pieces. Huh? So we did that before the ministerial, and I thought that that was also a very important point. But then, of course, ministers came in, and we spent many evenings. I think we probably had the most meetings on this particular topic uh, since the very beginning of the uh, ministerial. We finally agreed to everything, but we were still missing footnote one. Footnote one came at 4.20 in the morning on the 17th of June. So it was not until that moment that it was done. So, so many, many different moments here. I'm an academic, and this is the first time that footnotes became more important than the actual substantive text. It was footnote number one, and that was a concern about what developing countries can benefit from these flexibilities. So this was really an issue between um, uh, the United States and China, frankly. We decided not to um, overplay that issue, although it ran through the text, the eligibility criterion. But uh, Annabelle really was handling 
that side of it. And, and, and she did it extremely effectively. Uh, but there was a lot of anxiety. Will this uh, be the hedge issue? Because other delegations, they are hedging their own agreement on, on that outcome. What, what is going to happen? Will the U.S. and China not agree on, on a language for this footnote? And then all these negotiations will completely be upended. At the very last minute, I mean, we are sitting down uh, in the hall, actually, at the closing, and the U.S. ambassador and the Chinese ambassador walked up there, and um, they had reached an agreement on the language, and that sealed the deal. There was another footnote prior to that, footnote number two. The U.K. conceded also a few hours before um, the, the U.S. and China agreed on the language. There's no straight secret, it's an open secret, but these negotiations were prolonged for uh, various kinds of reasons. Uh, some of them, in retrospect, uh, quite trivial linguistic issues. But um, at the end of the day, it works out quite well. The fact that the United States and China at the very end came together on that, given the current geopolitical context, the trade tensions between the two, it seems almost a miracle that you got those two on board. Well, I have to tell you, uh, Dan, that I think this footnote one is indeed very important. It's very important because it helped us to sort out a thorny issue that has been here in the WTO for quite some time, which is what is the contribution of uh, emerging economies to the multilateral trading system? And here, both China and the U.S. found a way to say, well, China would make a binding commitment not to avail itself of the flexibilities included in this agreement. Uh, and this was done in a very pragmatic way. And I myself find that this is an interesting tool that negotiators will now ha have in their toolbox to facilitate the negotiations here at the WTO. We waited a long time for footnote one, as uh, Ambassador Gary was saying, but at the end, I think it is, uh, it is worth it. I should have mentioned also that going into this, my own position was quite fraught. Although I come from LDC, the original India-South Africa proposal, we had co-sponsored it as part of the African group. So there was some expectation among some delegations that I um, will be uh, sympathetic, which I was. <laughs> But I have to be neutral as well. I, my role was very limited. I was a facilitator, not, uh, not a decision maker. The decision was actually made by delegations. I got a lot of flags for leaving uh, some delegations, but like the quad process, you can't have every member in the room. So we have 30 delegations, um, including coordinators of regional groupings. And that was extremely helpful. And even that proved unwieldy at certain points. Was it realistic to open up this negotiation to the entire membership in a open room process? Or is it something that's it's inevitable and that it's going to have to work that way? In the context of this negotiation and in other negotiations as well, there are members that have greater stakes around a particular issue. And it is only natural that those members can come together and sit across the table to try to sort out those issues. It doesn't mean that the rest of the membership is not part of it. it. It is part of it, but you need to have, if you wish, concentric circles, and you may go in and out of those uh, circles to make sure that you are moving towards getting an agreement. I think at the end of the day, we had a very transparent process in the context of the WTO in reaching this agreement. And I think the most important part of it is that something that seemed absolutely impossible 
just a few months ago, resulted in one of the most important outcomes of MC12. This sort of connects to the broader discussion about the role of developing countries in the WTO. Ambassador Guberry, you pointed out that the initiative initially came from India and South Africa, supported by the African group and many others. I believe the proponents at one point said they had more than 100 members supportive of this. What does this say about the role of developing countries in the WTO? Not everyone is happy about this decision. Not the developing countries, um, certainly not also the rice holders, the developed world. But it does show that when a concerted effort is made on an issue that is found to be extremely relevant, movements can be made. I mean, there were a number of other decisions made across the board. I mean, this is the most successful MC12 in, in living memory. And um, decisions are made on, on fisheries, limited, on agriculture, on, on, on a host of other issues that are extremely important to us in the developing world and, and least developed societies. Some we did not get, but um, others we did. And that means there is progress. Clearly, uh, WTO is opening up. And this is um, a source of great interest to us in, the, in, in developing societies. There is one thing that this trips waiver thing did. In other negotiations, the developing world seems to be divided. But on this one, uh, frankly, it, it, there was absolutely no division whatsoever among the developing world. We all wanted uh, this decision. And some wanted more, a lot wanted a lot more, but there was no question about the need for a decision on the trace waiver. That was really um, the, the unifying thing among developing uh, and, and, and least developed countries. And about one of the other important outcomes of MC12 was, of course, this um, ministerial decision on the WTO response to the pandemic. Can you highlight for us um, why this uh, is a significant uh, outcome for the, for the conference? This declaration is mainly a recognition that uh, keeping trade open and flowing is important to make sure that uh, members can have access to the vaccines, to the therapeutics, to the diagnostics that are necessary to combat a pandemic. So there are a number of provisions that refer to, well, uh, if members need to uh, impose an export restrictions, how are they going to do it in a transparent manner? It's going to be temporary, etc. It talks about the importance of adopting trade facilitation measures to make sure that good can flow uh, easily across borders. It addresses the issue of regulatory cooperation, which is also very important to uh, expedite access uh, to these critical medical goods. It also addresses the role of uh, services in supporting the response to the pandemic. So it's a very, I would say, complementary result of the ministerial, complementary to the TRIPS decision. And all of it, I would say, if you look at it as a whole, is the WTO uh, response to the pandemic, a strong WTO response to the pandemic. Wrapping up, the dawn broke over Geneva's beautiful sunrise that morning when everything wrapped up. And I think that put everyone in a really good mood, not only having achieved the success of this, but uh, just a gorgeous sunrise. What's the first thing you did when you got home? I got home at seven in the morning uh, after, you know, more than 24 hours uh, without uh, sleeping. So I sent a message to my husband, uh, who was not here, and uh, told him, well, success. You know, it was, uh, it was done. And uh, so shared a bit of a conversation uh, with, uh, with my husband and my, and my daughters. Ambassador? A bottle of champagne, for sure. And I just slept in the living room. Well deserved. With my shoes on. 
I'd just like to say thank you, uh, Ambassador Lansana Giberi, and thank you for your great work. Um, Deputy Director General Annabel Gonzalez, thank you and for your fantastic efforts. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. In this episode, you heard about the efforts at the WTO to craft a more equitable and efficient response to the health challenges arising from the ongoing pandemic. WTO members managed to negotiate a deal that addresses the need to better respond to the health concerns of poorer countries by promoting vaccine production in regions of need. In the next episode, you will hear about another pressing issue that WTO members addressed during the 12th Ministerial Conference food insecurity, and how to make sure that export restrictions don't hamper efforts to distribute food aid to the most vulnerable populations on this globe. Everybody needs to eat. It's a basic need, and I think COVID was a very good example of it. There were two things that mattered, health and food. People stopped buying cars, everything became secondary, but you cannot live without food. With creativity and goodwill, uh, anything is possible, and the key word remains compromise. One of the situations that you feel when you are in the middle of this process and uh, as a chair of a process is a lack of trust. Tune in next time to Let's Talk Trade.